0: Trouble is in wondering why.
1: Yeah. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We're gonna to continue to review the speech given October 20th at BYU-Idaho by faculty member Jason Kunzler tonight, but once again, uh, the world of Mormonism continues to be rocked by uh, current events. I just bring that up now because we're gonna talk about those a little bit after we talk about Kunzler's speech. This is part three of four. We won't finish it. We're going to continue it on next week. But first, we are going to begin with a prayer by our brother and superhero, Micah.
0: Our Father in heaven, um, I humbly come before you tonight. Um, um, we're just seeking your love and uh, your truth, Lord. There are so many out there that um, they haven't found you yet and I pray that uh, Sean can speak to those tonight and that those with ears can hear and eyes to see Lord Um, we're so grateful for all the many blessings you give us Lord Um, I pray for all those who are going through hard times right now Lord Um, many are I, I say these things in uh, Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Amen. That uh, young man has a heart for the Lord. He has, uh, since I've known him for a number of years, a great young man. So, alrighty folks, part three of what we're calling Billions Shall Know the Heart of Mormonism Now. Uh, and what we're doing is we're taking a speech. You can look it up at BYU-Idaho under the name of Jason Kunstler, October 20th. Why are we dissecting this speech line by line? Having made a study of Mormonism a major part of my life, I believe it is perhaps the single most important speech that has been given since Brigham Young talked on Adam God or Joseph Smith spoke at King Follett's funeral and talked about the, uh, uh, how God was once a man. What makes this speech so important, aside from the things we've already mentioned, uh, I've worked through it line by line, and the speech takes the founding prophet of the LDS church and sidles him up right next to Jesus Christ himself without apology, without any equivocation. It's the most forthright speech I have ever seen in my life about how the LDS uh, collectively in their body of doctrine look to Joseph Smith and tonight we're gonna to get some better evidence of this claim again. I'm convinced that if, and again if, the LDS brethren allow the speech to continue to be out there, and they have allowed it this thus far, there's been no editing, no one's taken it down, without correction or removal from the public eye, that it will from this point forward serve kind of as a shot across the bow of all things LDS. It, where they're admittingly, admitting openly uh, and without any more excuses who they think Joseph Smith is and which is nothing less than a partner with Jesus Christ in the salvation of man. Tonight's revelations will serve to convince you of this if you haven't been convinced already. Why do this now? Why do this at all? I believe that Mormonism has obfuscated the facts of its history and teachings in the past, and they've been caught now. And that, that being caught started with the advent of the internet. And you know before Sandra Tanner and Fawn Brody and different people, they brought out books and they brought out stuff, but it really wasn't universally uh, available until the internet. And so now, having been caught, they tried its hand at transparency toward the membership and with the public, And I think in the face of all the stuff that's happening, they have a decision to make. First, they can admit that Joseph Smith was not what the faith has long claimed him to be and begin to change much of what Mormonism is about. Or they can step up and boldly claim that he was everything that he said he was and more And I think that's what Jason Kunstler at BYU-Idaho has done. He has publicly stated he was everything that he claimed to be and more. Um, We left off last week hearing Jason Kunstler, the speaker at BYU, say about Joseph Smith, quote, He gave us the Bible. These are quotes. In particular, those plain and precious excerpts in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Kunstler then goes on and talks about how Smith provided the world with the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and um, the Book of Mormon. For those of you who don't know, Joseph Smith took the Bible, the King James Version, and he didn't use any of the early manuscripts and he didn't, we didn't have the Rosetta Stone. We didn't have any types of, not that the Rosetta Stone would have helped him, but He took the Bible, and he read it, and he took out parts, and he inserted parts, including his own name in the book of Genesis, and he massaged things in the Bible, and they call that version the inspired version, meaning it was through inspiration that he was able to read it and then fix it to the best of his ability according to the scripture. What that amounts to is a completely different show. But this is why that speaker, Kunstler says, he gave us the Bible. I mean, he actually makes that statement, okay? So then he goes on and he talks about how he gave us the Book of Mormon, Dr. Burns for a great prize. Let's continue and hear what he has to say right now.
2: These books contain the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are essential for our salvation.
1: Okay, stop. We're having a little audio stuff. We have to work through this, but bear with us. He just said, these books, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Book of Mormon, Bible, contain the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ and are essential to our salvation, end quote. Now think with me here. Jesus came, and the Bible reports that many were saved when Jesus came. Those who were saved, like at the day of Pentecost, did not have access to the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, or Pearl of Great Price. As a matter of fact, they didn't even have access to the New Testament. There was no New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament, and that lacked Joseph Smith's uh, uh, corrections. So how were these people in the Bible saved if, Kunstler says, the books of the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Book of Mormon are essential to our salvation? How were they saved? They weren't, these books didn't even exist. So according to Kunstler, the books that Smith provided the world are essential, but 1,800 years before Smith founded the church, the Bible described that salvations were occurring all over the place. See, the problem with making Smith and his books essential to salvation, again, in Mormonism and according to Kunstler, Jesus and the good news is not enough for salvation. He's making this point clear. We need now the books that Smith created. Okay? Start again.
2: King Benjamin's words have special meaning to us today when he said. Precious excerpts in the Joseph Smith translation. The book of of Mormon, which he translated by the gift of God, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants. These books contain the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are essential for our salvation. King Benjamin's words have special meaning to us today when he said, were it not for these scriptures, which have been kept and preserved by the hand of God, even our fathers would have dwindled in unbelief, and we should know nothing concerning these things. In writing the scriptures, the ancient prophets had their eyes fixed, not only on Jesus Christ, but also on Joseph Smith.
1: Okay, stop. Okay, so he, goes, he, he quotes a Book of Mormon a character named King Benjamin, But but what he says next, he says, In writing the scriptures, the ancient prophets had their eyes fixed, listen, not only on Jesus Christ, but also on Joseph Smith. Thus far, Kunstler has given us LDS teachings that say Jesus and Joseph are linked, that no one in this dispensation can enter into the presence of God in Christ without the approval of Joseph Smith, that no man has done more for the salvation of man excepting Jesus than Joseph Smith, that Joseph Smith is, aside from Christ, the greatest man to ever walk the face of this earth. And now he has said that when the ancient prophets wrote, speaking of future salvation of the world and looking to Christ, they not only were just looking and speaking of Christ but they were also, also speaking of Joseph Smith. So he has linked Smith all the way through to Christ in the salvation of man. How much more can we take? The sharing, the linking, and now biblical prophets, he says, were speaking of Smith when they wrote. This breaks my heart, but listen on. Go ahead.
2: Joseph Smith taught that prophets priests, and kings, have looked forward with joyful anticipation to the day in which we live, and fired with heavenly and joyful anticipations they have sung and written and prophesied of this our day." Close quote. We can come to see the prophet Joseph, including his mission and his character, all throughout the scriptures. We can see him extensively in the words of Isaiah, In the great king Josiah, in the stone cut out of a mountain without hands prophesied of by Daniel, as the faithful and wise servant spoken of by Jesus, and as the choice seer spoken of by Joseph and Lehi, we can find him hidden in parables such as the leaven hid in the three measures of meal, and the servant who converses with the Lord throughout Zenus's allegory of the olive tree we can find him with his brother, Hiram, as the fellow servants slain under the altar that John saw, and all throughout the book of Revelation. As we humbly search the scriptures, we will come to know both Jesus Christ and his servant, Joseph
1: Smith. Okay, stop. Okay, so now he gives us examples. And he says, Joseph Smith taught that the prophets, priests, kings, they look to our day. We can't, quote, we can come to see the prophet Joseph, including his mission, his character, all through the scriptures. Extensively in Isaiah, he says. In the great King Josiah story, in the stone cut out of the mountain without hands prophesied by Daniel, So these are three biblical references in the faithful and wise servant chosen by Jesus spoken of by Jesus Jesus was talking about Joseph Smith hidden in the parable of the leaven hidden in the three measures of meal and he adds we can find him and he here you can hear him getting emotional with his brother Hiram Referred to in the book of Mormon, I mean, in the book of Revelation, he says all throughout the book of Revelation, Joseph Smith is mentioned. He says, as, he wraps us up, we humbly search the scriptures, we will come to know both, and this is the point of his speech, it's both Christ Jesus and his servant Joseph Smith that the scriptures speak of it. So, this This man now literally is taking Joseph Smith and he's trying to tell the members when they read scripture, look for him. This is their new, this is the thing. And he gives us six examples. He starts off with Isaiah. I challenge anyone to contextually prove where Isaiah refers to, points, alludes to, or prophesies about Joseph Smith. There are are scholars who have read Isaiah for thousands of years, have written entire voluminous volumes on Isaiah. None of them see, recognize any other person. The only people who see Joseph Smith and Isaiah are the people who have been programmed to see Joseph Smith in Isaiah by men like Kunstler. I know where J. Smith claims Isaiah was speaking of him. I know how he took that, and I know the places, Isaiah 29, 20 through 22. But that doesn't count, because he says that Isaiah was talking about him. That doesn't matter. Kunstler then says, King Josiah, and I'm not going to go into that, and he says, in the stone cut out of mountains without hands, prophesied by Daniel. Okay? Now, I'm not going to, let me talk about, the King Josiah thing too convoluted to try to cover, but I do want to address Kunstler associating Joseph Smith with Daniel's prophecy of the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. I have heard LDS prophet uh, Gordon B. Hinckley make a similar association saying that the LDS church was this stone. The Mormon church was the stone that the prophet Daniel talked about being cut out of the mountain without hands. Joseph Smith said, God said in Doctrine and Covenants 65:2, quote, the keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto a man on the earth. That's Joseph Smith. And from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. What Joseph Smith did here and what uh, Gordon B. Hinckley and Kunstler echoed thereafter was to say that the restored gospel through Joseph Smith would be the stone Daniel, the prophet, talked about that was cut out of the mountain without hands and would roll forth to fill the earth. And they assign it and apply it to themselves. This hijacking of biblical passages and inserting new interpretation into the text is what Kunstler is telling people to do when they read the Bible. To look for Joseph Smith in the text that you read, you will find him there and this is the means you will come to know him. I mean, it is really radical because if they can get people when they read the Bible to start seeing Smith everywhere in it, they are going to mess their minds up so badly on being able to read it normally, they'll never come to the truth. Let me take a minute really quickly and explain how Christians see uh, Daniel's vision and interpretation. The stone cut out without hands signifies that which will, when it says fill the earth, it's spiritual. It is not about a physical stone coming and breaking apart and filling up the whole earth. It's, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's a reference to the stone cut out without hands. It's a spiritual kingdom. Combining the two, what Daniel said and what Paul said, we are speaking of something and someone that will spiritually and radically roll forth and fill the earth. Hmm, is this Joseph Smith and the church that he started or is this better fulfilled in the spiritual rebirth and baptism of the Holy Spirit that came upon this earth through Christ Jesus shed blood? I suppose we better ask at this point, what or who is the stone? Hinckley says it's the Mormon Church. No. Uh, throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, stone, rock, is emblematic of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what will roll through on this earth. All the way back to Genesis 29:4, I mean, 49:24, it says, from the, prosperity, from the posterity of Jacob, quote, is the shepherd, the stone, capital S, of Israel. Okay? Who is the shepherd from the posterity of Jacob? The stone, the shepherd of Israel? It's Christ. All the way back in Genesis, it's describing him. All right? Um, in Isaiah 8, 14, it says, And he shall be for a sanctuary but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the house of Israel. Talking about Christ. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth not make haste. So all of it prophesying when it talks about the rock, it's talking about Christ. 1 Peter 4, uh, 2 4 six, and 8 the stone which is the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner we read in ephesians about jesus christ being the chief cornerstone cornerstone of the foundation of apostles and prophets so all of this all of these verses throughout the bible always and only speak of jesus he is the stone carried forth by the spirit that will roll forth Cut out of a mountain without hands, meaning it's not going to be a temple, not going to be a building. It's going to be him, the rock, that fills the whole earth. Kunstler goes on to say that we can read about Smith in the faithful and wise servant spoken of by Jesus. Got to be kidding me. Does he really believe Jesus was speaking, referring, prophesying of Smith in that parable? But in a moment of great irony. I mean, this is only irony that God could author. I really believe that. Kunstler also said that Smith can be found, quote, in the parable of the leaven hidden in the three measures of meal. Okay. He believed he was saying something really good there, that that Joseph can be seen of the woman who took leaven and hid it in the three measures of meal until it filled the whole thing. Now, I want you to think about something. Let me just teach you something. Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? Right. In all their offerings since the beginning in the house of Israel, any offering to God in the law and in their history forbade something. Do you know what it said? Do not include this in any of your offerings to me. Do you know what it was? It was leaven, it was yeast. God says, no yeast. When you're dealing with me. Paul uses the product of yeast or leaven properly in 1 Corinthians, describing the church there. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 5. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. What was happening there in Corinth is there is a guy who took his father's wife. And Paul says, it's been reported that you guys are having fornication, but in a a style that's not reported among many Gentiles, one guy thinks it's okay to take his father's wife. Okay? He goes up and he says in verse 2, you are puffed up, is what he says, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you for verily as absent in the body but present in spirit I have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior when you were gathered together and my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ deliver this one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the last day of the Lord Jesus Christ and then he says listen your glorying meaning it's okay, is not good. He says, know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Now, what he's saying is you have allowed this man who's taken his father's wife and you're glorying in what he's doing. And he says, by doing that, introducing that into the body, you are leavening the whole thing. What does leaven do? It produces a gas. It produces putrefaction. It produces corruption into otherwise good meal, and it causes it to puff up and grow yeast. And to God, it's a symbol throughout Scripture of something bad, something that is not good. All right. Leaven's corroding and inflating power to puff up referred to as alluded by Jesus. He talks about the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, um, I mean, in Matthew 16, he says, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of what they introduce into your uh, conversations, etc. So historically and throughout Scripture, leaven is a picture of corruption to otherwise pure elements. For Jesus to use leaven in his illustration of the church as a positive is absolutely contrary to the meaning of that parable. He was saying in the context of... Remember... He said a bunch of parables, the kingdom of heaven is like, he said it's like a big net that catches a bunch of fish. In that net, there's bad fish and there's good fish. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a tree, a little seed that grows and the birds of the air, another bad symbol, lodge themselves in it, meaning there's going to be evil things that live in the church. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a guy who plants wheat but somewhere someone went in and planted weeds too. Let them grow up together, showing that there's bad mixed in with the good. In the context of those parables, he gives the parable of the woman. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who went and hid leaven in the three things of meal until they were completely corrupted, is what he says. The, Jesus' teaching on the leaven is not a good thing. It is saying that the church is going to be corrupted, just like it's going to be filled with birds sitting in the trees. It's going to be filled with weeds as well as the wheat. It's going to be good fish and bad fish. The leaven is not good. And Kunstler here thinks that, that the leaven is saying it's a great thing. Joseph Smith is like the leaven. And I think really when we think about it, it's probably true. It may be the only pl- place where he's right. Joseph Smith is like the leaven that is introduced into the body. And what does his gospel bring to the church it puffs it up it makes it proud because you're obeying the law because you because we make a lot of money because we're consuming the earth and so i think it was just pure irony that the guy i mean he's speaking he should know if he's going to use the example he better know his stuff this was a total uh cluster all right He says we can find him referred to in the book of Revelation. And he starts to weep here when Joseph and Hiram were slain. And the book of Revelation talks about the two who were killed under the altar and that was speaking extensively, he says. The book of Revelation extensively speaks of Joseph and Hiram. Uh, He's talking about Revelation 6, 9 through 10. It says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar of souls of them that were slain for the word of God. And for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge the blood of them that dwells on the earth? He says that Revelation is talking about Joseph Smith there. Let me ask you a question. First chapter of Revelation, who's it written to? Who's it written to? It says right there. It's written to the seven churches in Asia. That's who the book was written to. Not to us, not about Smith. Not about anything except to the seven churches and what they were going on. It's an apocalyptic message describing the history of God and warring, warning them of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, including the temple, uh, which amounts to uh, the end of all things for them. What was at the temple? There was altars. And at the very front of the, te- at the, very front of the temple was an altar where they offered sacrifice. And it's presumed that, the, that John the Revelator wrote... That there would be, at the destruction, people who were slain and left under that altar. That is the context for it. For him to apply to Joseph and Hiram and the death of their gunfight against others when they shot back and tried to kill them is preposterous. What Kunstler and those he has cited and quoted have done is they have taken the word of God and they have sought to get it to apply to LDS history and Joseph Smith. It's astounding. It's disturbing approach because the net result is watering down the singular mission of Christ Jesus, the sharing of His singular gospel, uh, where He said, "It is finished, and it was finished," establishing the church. For the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Smith said it did. Linking Joseph Smith uh, to jo- to Jesus' rule and reign uh, from a man born in the 1820s or 1800s. His proposal for members of the LDS faith to search the scripture to see and discover Smith is really unconscionable. It's a new level of brainwashing.
2: All right, go ahead, Lanes. In this connection, may I offer a suggestion to all of us? If we truly desire to know the prophet, we must go to the right source. And that is not a
1: Google search. Stop. Uh, I would suggest that the way to know the profit is to go to a Google search. Uh, you are, look at, you go to a Ford dealer and you say, I'm thinking of buying a Chevy. The Ford dealer says, Oh, the Chevy's no good. You go to the Chevy dealer and you say, I'm thinking of buying a Ford. The Chevy dealer says, Oh, the Ford is no good. So you look exactly into ford and their history and what how they make a ford and you go to chevy and you look at the at the chevy and how they make the chevy you go and you do a google search and you read from church sources what what is the reference that we're going to now what's it called they're putting out their things about Fairmormon.com. what is it Fairmormon.com. fear fair mormon.com Fairmormon.com. uh do a google search Read everything. A Google search, in my estimation, is a billion times better uh, information on the person of Joseph Smith than taking the word of God and trying to discover him written in the lines of the Bible. Also notice the directive, stay away. The directive is stay away from Internet sources. Uh, He supports this directive by quoting LDS prophet uh, Ezra Taft Benson. So here's what he says
2: as President Ezra Taft Benson taught. Today, with the abundance of books available, it is the mark of a truly educated man to know what not to
3: read.
1: Okay, stop. Okay, they're just working people, just working people, what not to read. John F. Kennedy once said, libraries should be open to all except censors. The LDS mantra to avoid certain information is a deep-seated desire, in my estimation, to censor. Censor every member and, not, and get them to not look, not investigate. It's, they can't do it anymore, though. It's kind of out of their hands, so their only course of action is to get people to feel badly for investigating and, and, and to then and use their imaginations to try to see Smith in the scriptures now. Uh, investigate all things, everything, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, everything you got. Some information is bad, absolutely, and some is good. But you can never go wrong with investigation wanting to know the truth. Now, admittedly, if you are investigating to pad your personal desires to prejudice yourself, um, to discover what you want to be true, it's really dangerous because you will find what you want to be true. I mean, I mean, I am convinced of that. We see and discover what we want to see and discover. This is why they are telling their members to seek Smith in the scriptures. They, if they have that mindset to look for him in the scriptures as they read, they will discover him. We seek, we discover what we seek. So humans are so programmed to to discover what they want to find that I guarantee you, if you want to find Hugh Hefner in the Bible, you could find him. If you really search, you'll find something that will prove Hugh Hefner is in the Bible. I guarantee it. You can do it. You can twist it. Uh, But there is an enormous difference between investigating and seeking to know and, and, and try to balance it out than to justify your prejudices. And that means Christians too. It means everybody. Open it up and don't be afraid. Okay, go ahead, uh, Lanes. The Lord
2: gave us the key to knowing Joseph Smith when he said, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. And what are those best books? Brothers and sisters, they're the scriptures. The God. Savior...
1: The oldest scriptures uh, have been provided to them by one man and who had God mention him in them, including in the revisions of the Bible that he provided. And he says, this is the way. Seek out the best books and the best book are the scriptures. So we go to those to discover Smith. Again, it's a a very uh, scary, uh, slippery slope. Go ahead, Delaney.
2: You're taught that we shall know them by their fruits. We will come to know the prophet by daily partaking of his fruit, the scriptures, more than any other writings.
1: Okay, stop. Jesus said in John 5, 9, listen, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Okay? counselor, just told his audience, to do the same thing to discover Smith, that they testify of him. Jesus said, search them, they testify of me. Kunstler has said, search them, they testify of Smith. It's diabolical. It really is. He says, we will come to know the prophet better by daily partaking of his fruit, his fruit, quote, the scriptures. So he says, they're his fruits, the scriptures. He's telling members to search the scriptures because they testify of Smith. But once again, he's painted himself into a corner. And let me explain why. He started off by saying, we will come to know the prophet better by partaking of his fruit, the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus teaches about fruits. Here, Kunstler has tripped himself up once again. In his teaching, Jesus makes this plain. The way you can know the quality of a tree is by its fruit. He says a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. That means a good tree doesn't produce both. The way you know the fruit of something or somebody is by looking at the fruit if it's good then that tree is good if it's bad then the tree is bad but you don't have a tree that on this branch gives you good fruit and on that branch gives you bad the tree as a whole is either good or the tree as a whole is bad and this is how jesus says to know a prophet he says if someone says they're a prophet take the tree look at the fruit and if it's good meaning all good it has to all be good they're a prophet if it's bad, they are not a prophet. If it's 90% good and 10% bad, no profit. 99% good, 1% bad, no profit. A tree gives good fruit or a tree gives bad fruit. So did Smith as the prophet ever produce any bad fruit? Scripture that contradicts plural marriage with teenagers, united order a license to take life or in Porter Rockwell, assign them to, to shoot people, pride, arrogance, false prophecies, instituting an absolutely false priesthood that goes contrary to the biblical idea of priesthood being fulfilled in Christ and Hebrews. Kunstler has tried to present Smith and his life's work as pure and innocent and based in obedience to God completely because he knows if Smith produces any bad fruit, He's a bad tree. And so in this speech, he has tried to reiterate he has done nothing but good. He has called him pure, righteous. Joseph Smith's own doctrine and covenants called him walking in all holiness. So they have to set him up with Christ in order to have him lead this church as somebody who is linked to Christ. you get it? Don't roll over. Test all the fruits that Joseph Smith produced. If any prove bad, He's bad as a prophet, not as a person, as a prophet. Jesus said it. I didn't. Okay? So at this point, Kunstler gives us the third way to know Joseph Smith. He gives us three. This is the third. The third
2: thing that we must do to come to know Joseph Smith is to be loyal to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We cannot know the Savior or Joseph Smith without being 100% loyal to this church and to the priesthood keys held by the prophets who now preside over it.
1: Stop. It's un... Man, I'm going to swear. It's un-freaking-believable. We cannot know the Savior or Joseph Smith without being 100% loyal to this church, and to the priesthood keys held by the prophet that now presides over it. The implication is firmly established. If you do not fully support and endorse Mormonism today, you cannot know Jesus. Notice the 100% loyalty is not to Jesus that counselor didn't say you need to be completely loyal to God and Christ, which is impossible because no one is to know him. But he says it's to the LDS institution. And here we see Mormonism has inserted itself, the church, in between God and man. I am personally convinced that everything we do, everything we choose, everything we allow, we're responsible for those choices. Those who believe that it's more important to give their allegiance and devotion to Mormonism or to Catholicism, or to campus, or to being a Baptist, or to this church, or that group, are entitled to make that choice. But don't make a mistake. We will reap what we sow. And I'm personally prepared to fully reap my personal decision to refuse all these intermediaries completely. Every freaking single one of them. Completely. And stand before God through Christ alone. No one else. I suggest that this is the message of the good news. You might see it differently, but it's our right and it's ultimately our responsibility to seek God in spirit and in truth directly and without the intervention of men. And I I just personally believe that when we die, if we have allowed these institutions to step in and do things for us, I personally believe God will say, why did you do that? My spirit called to you. My son gave his life for you and you kept putting these men and these women up in front of you to make decisions for you in your relationship. But I would also suggest that counter to what Kunstler and Mormonism promotes, that every individual is being called by God through the Holy Spirit to come to him directly, and that is we will be responsible. And in this, there is life. There is liberty. There is an unencumbered relationship with him that cannot be corrupted by the leaven of this world when you have it. If you just seek him, we're going to pause our coverage on the speech uh, because this last part's a little heavy. We're going to finish it up next week in the final part for the time being. Let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. I'm not sure we have that much time, uh, but callers, operators are going to clear, but we have an outstanding new spot from none other than Cassidy. Let's take a look. Tired of having other people dictate how you live your life? Open the freaking Bible. Sick of being told what to believe by men and pastors? You have the right to read the Word of God by the Spirit and let God tell you what to believe and then believe it. You don't have to agree with me or anybody else. But your liberty is not going to come by not doing anything. Your liberty comes by reading the Word of God. Cassidy. Fantastic. We got Vincent from Atlanta, Georgia. The graphics are sliding off the screen, and we have Avidan in Canada. Uh, we're gonna go with Vincent first. I'm guessing this is one. Vincent, you're on Heart of the Matter.
4: Hey, Sean. How are Vincent? You? Hey, how are you?
1: Hold on one second, yeah. Vincent. Okay. okay. Talk. Keep talking, Vincent
4: oh can you hear me at
1: all now keep going keep talking
4: okay um i'm talking uh <laughs> i don't
1: know what to say um okay. you, know, you got really okay go ahead and give it a shot vincent
4: hello
1: hi <laughs> hey. i think we've died vincent
4: <laughs> can you hear me
1: I can hear you, can you hear me?
4: Yeah, I can hear you.
1: Okay, Vincent, just talk and we'll, we'll keep working on the audio. Just say your question.
4: Okay, um, my question would be, I guess for you, Sean, I've been trying to get in touch with you for a while now, man. You're a hard guy to get in touch with, but I talked to you a couple weeks ago um, and I told you that I was, I don't know if you remember, I'm getting my PhD.
1: I do remember. Yeah, well,
4: uh, just, just to be honest, I mean, my <clears throat> my faith in the whole, like, God thing hasn't really been getting stronger. I think that I'm practically an atheist now, but um, what I would ask is, <clears throat> is there any circumstance, any, on planet Earth, that you would think it's okay to own another human being?
1: To own?
4: Another human being. Whether it be invention, servanthood, however you want to put it, to own people as
1: property—I personally would have a great deal of difficulty with that. However, uh, if there was a law that certain people needed to be owned in order for certain commerce to go on, and I was part of that, see myself going through with it but it doesn't mean I would be a a, a terrible person it means I would be a very good owner so I can see myself participating in owning another person if it was part of the culture and community of the time did we lose you
4: no can you hear me
1: okay keep going
4: Um, yes well the problem I have with it is I don't even think in culture that I could ever own anybody, Um, and I think it's highly immoral. And then the other thing is uh, that I have an issue with is in Exodus 21, you know, it's talking about the heathen slaves, which is the, um, the slaves from other nations, that, oh, well, if you beat them, as long as they don't die in one or two days, that really it's your loss because they were your slave and, you know, you make money off them. So as long as you beat them, you don't kill them. Well, then that's okay. Yeah. That's a problem for me. And the other problem I have is, I'm sorry, like, we know from archaeology and history that, like, obviously they didn't have guns back then. So, like, when they killed infants, they slaughtered them. Yeah. I can't see myself killing an infant, and any God that tells me to do that, I'm really going to tell him to screw off. I'm not killing a baby because you tell me to. And I really don't see the difference between that like okay if radical islam goes into lands and say well our holy book tells us to kill all these people women and children and christians are like oh i'm so offended by that what's different than what moses did i mean he went into different lands with different people i mean you literally have to say they got the wrong god so that makes it immoral
1: yeah uh let me put it this way vincent this is how i see it and for whatever it's worth. But I do want to talk to you, and if you and, and if you stay on the line, I'll have someone give you my cell phone. So you can call me directly and we can talk. Um, but just let me say this. Okay. The Old Testament is a book that is dealing with God calling out a nation from among a very pagan group of people. And he said... They were emblematic, using that word a lot tonight, of his righteous people and him wanting to keep them pure. And so when they would go into a village and they would go to take that over as a picture of sin in our life, he would say, kill the animals, kill the males, the females, and the children. Now, in our day and age, you, I would hope you would say, I'm not going to kill a child. But again, contextually, going into a pagan country, they supposedly they were having sex with each other, with the children. They were, they were pagan. They were offering human sacrifice. And those pagan countries and those pagan people represented the leaven to the nation of Israel. And for them to let this, those people survive would have corrupted that nation as a people. I, all I can say is that's how I see it. I can't say we can justify it in our day and age, but that's what he was dealing with. And they were under his law and his law was not going to allow any unholy thing in the presence of his people. And so he said as a picture, wipe them out. And when they wouldn't, it was introducing leaven into that that nation of Israel. That's how I see it. I don't justify it. It's the only way I can explain it.
4: So does God's morals come from God himself, or is it something outside of God? Meaning, does God tell us what morality is, or does it actually come from God himself?
1: I think, Vincent, that God was not looking at the uh, individual situation as he went along. I think he has a grand narrative in mind. And in order to bring us through to that grand narrative end, which is, I believe, he will reconcile all people to himself, including those babies who were killed back in the day. I think in order to bring it all about in the midst of a fallen, corrupt world, he, uh, he used and abused and allowed all things to go on, knowing that he would bring about a good end. In terms of his morals, I think that God is love. It's not that he has love. He is love. Now, we can say, what? You call it God's love? That he was killing children? In the long narrative, yes. In the end, yes. It would work out to that. In the short term, through just looking at that, it would look very bad. And that's what I would suggest for you to do is try to see what's the ultimate end purpose means of that whole biblical narrative that we read from Genesis to Revelation.
4: Yeah, I'm. <clears throat> I'm just having problems with it because I know you are. To me, and, that doesn't make sense because oh, well, if we kill babies, I'm the creator of the universe. Let me give you a historical book from a thousand years ago. Let me never show myself to anybody. Let you know all these miracles that happened before. We don't see. I mean, how is it? You know, and I could go on another tantrum. But the whole thing is, if if God is love, then love actually comes from Him, which means morals come from him. If if morals, okay, so like, if morals don't come from God, but he's explaining what morals are, then morality doesn't come from God, therefore we don't need God, we just need morals. But if morals do come from God, if he says what is right and what is wrong, and that's why we live this way, as all these idiotic apologetics try to say that, oh, well, you know, because Sean, I have a problem with somebody telling me that I know what's right and wrong like someone telling me that they know what I know so they say that Romans 1 you know we all know that there's a God and we just suppress the truth and all that okay if that's the case then his morals are arbitrary whatever he says then it's moral so it's a circular reasoning God is love because love is God and God is love and you know the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true do you see what I'm saying I
1: do I do. I understand it, and I don't think I can uh, answer it efficiently, at least not in over an a on-air call. But please stay you. on the line, Vincent, because I do want to talk with you, and I think that you and I could have some good conversations, and I'm not sure that I can add anything to, to how you're seeing things now, but at least we can converse, and I can show you how I see it. So, so will you do that? Will you stay on? So we, I might be hard to get a hold of through the email and stuff, but stay on, and they'll give you my personal phone number.
4: All right, I got you, Sean.
1: Thank you. Okay, hold on. Cass, will you go give him my personal phone number? I don't think anyone knows it back there. Oh, you got it? Hey, Derek. All right, we're going to Avidan in Canada. Avidan. Hi. How are you?
3: I'm doing well. How about you?
1: Doing well. You're on the air, and our sound is working well.
3: Awesome. Awesome. Okay, good to finally speak to the donkey himself.
1: (laughs) Here I am. Jack of the asses.
3: So um, I, I was just wanted to mention, so we're not allowed to uh, look up on the internet for any information. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right, no Google search.
3: Well, I tell you what, I was a convert uh, back in 2008 or so, and guess how I found the Mormon church? It was a banner ad on the internet.
1: Wow, so funny how, how it, it wouldn't funny.
3: wouldn't a problem with that, hey?
1: Wow, that's radical.
3: <laughs> now, luckily enough, I ended up finding actually a couple of your videos where you kind of point by point broke it down. But I guess my question for you is, and I know you don't have too much time left, but um, like how much of a part do you think that just saying that right there and using that, uh, the, the fallacy of appeal to shame of uneduc- or, uh, not being educated really took part in that speech alone?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think it took a large part in that speech.
3: It, it almost seemed like it was kind of like on the zenith of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. I'm curious about something. Uh, is it Avidan? Uh, Avidan. Avidan, sorry. Uh, oh, no problem. Uh, did you come out? And how did you come out?
3: How did I come out? Well, I first started, uh, I, I noticed that there was something off, even though there was, there was a part of me that wanted to go in. Um, now, once I did, it took a while for me to convert uh, out of it. Uh, it took about two years, an in and out process. But after that, um, it took a little bit, but I was finally born again in Christ in 2012. And uh, right now I did a little bit of a stumbling for the past couple of years, but now I finally came back to Christ. And uh, But how did I come out? It was through the Internet, absolutely. It was through looking at sources, going on uh, what you had actually shown, for one source anyways, uh, through your episodes, one by one, piece by piece. Uh, looking at utlm.org and then just doing my own research and debating Mormons online. Praise they God. They did not have answers. They would dogpile me, but they wouldn't have answers.
1: That's a really great way to put They would dogpile you, but there's no <laughs> answers. You're at the bottom. But wait a minute. What about another person jump on?
3: <laughs> uh, if you ever debate them online, it usually starts with one, and then they probably call two or three friends to come in in the same thread. It's, uh, it's a fun time on Facebook or wherever you go, but usually you don't get the answers. You'll usually get a good twist. I'm sure you're used to it from the phone calls.
1: Yeah. Hey, my brother, thanks for watching. Thanks for the call. Keep us informed.
3: God bless.
1: God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going right. to try to take one quick call. We don't have much time. I'm really sorry. Mark in Columbus, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. I'm sorry we don't have much time, but go ahead.
5: Hey, Sean, I just wanted to tell you I appreciate what you do, the time you spent um, making this uh, information available to everybody. Um, I'm trying to just uh, develop my ability to speak with the Mormons um, by studying and listening to your show. But really quick, um, some, there's a family that I coached their daughter for years in gymnastics, their LDS. They moved out, back out to Utah from uh, where I've lived with them. Um, how do I get started if I want to just, like, bring the subject up and just try to uh, minister to them? They know that I love them dearly as a family, so there's a real good relationship there. So I didn't know if that was helpful to um, just to get started and, and try to have the conversation with them. It would well, probably be over the phone or Facebook or something like that. But
1: so do you see them personally?
5: I don't anymore. I, they, they live, you know, utah and i'm in okay
1: and so. you can try you know just be ready one to lose the relationship uh most faithful lds once the heat starts getting turned on if they aren't really really strong where they stand they will cut you out uh and so uh, be prepared to lose that relationship i would suggest don't come guns a-blazing uh just talk to i would probably just talk to them about jesus about christ and maybe use some of his words. Are you born again? And what does that mean? And, and, and what do you think of him? And uh, what's your salvation based on? And some very innocuous, vague questions that are kind of general in nature. And if they open up and are willing to talk, then you might be able to send them some information. If you need literature, write us and we'll send it to you. But uh, as opposed to going gangbusters, I would just choose to share the truth rather than the lies of Mormonism. Let the jackasses like me do that on the internet that they're not supposed to watch. And uh, let, and then you bring Jesus into the picture and really try to let that love shine through. To me, that's the best way to reach people in, that are in relationships with you who are LDS.
5: Should I let them know how much I have studied at all, or just keep
1: that? I'd keep it. I'd keep those cards close to your chest and just slowly let it out if it comes up and you need it. And they ask, but they're on the defensive already. Anytime someone will start to question, it's just going to be well, we're done. They might act like they're engaging and entertain and in, in, uh, engaging with it and want it, but at a certain point, when they start to see that you know your stuff and they will shut it down almost always
5: and then years later they may contact you once they've kind of gone through it and decided for themselves that it's all messed up
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> all
5: right well i appreciate you brother thanks for all, all right having thanks fun. so
1: much Mar- hey, hey, listen if you need some uh material stay on the line will you and we'll get your name and address and send it out to you Oh, uh, thank you so much okay hold on I hold all right really quick we're gonna wrap this up we're out of time uh, but uh, the homosexual thing, the, the same-gender marriage and what they've done with the children, um, the, the real sad thing is, and I, our friend Richard, he said, and I can't say it how he said it, because he's funny and I'm not about this, but he said a great line that's about them afraid of catching gay. And really what they've done is they are terrified that if the children of same-gender children are allowed in with their children, then their children are going to catch gay like you'd catch a cold. And it's going to ruin their uh, empire. And you kind of put it like that. And I think there's a lot to that. It's funny uh, when we say it, but it's it's sad but true. And so um, more and more they are kind of seeing that their empire is crumbling. And we just need to keep sharing the solution for the people who are coming out of it. And that is uh, Christ Jesus. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising, the dawn's waiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start